irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Hello, welcome to All Things Therapy. I am Lisa Tahir, your host. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I practice as an intuitive psychotherapist. I'm certified in EMDR and Reiki. I have physical offices in both Los Angeles and New Orleans. And I provide Skype sessions worldwide. If you are interested in booking a session, if you're interested in being a guest on this show or advertising, please find me at my website, which is nolatherapy.com, the abbreviation for New Orleans, Los Angeles Therapy. And you can find this show and subscribe to it on YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. So I'm really excited to speak to my guest today, who I'll be bringing on in just a few moments. Uh, We were speaking before the show about the similarities we have in our upbringing. She is Linda Misla Wagner. She is author of As Is, Confessions of a True Fatty. And while that title might be a little shocking and surprising as it was to me at first, she speaks really openly and and bluntly about being an obesity survivor. And in her lifetime, she has gained and lost over a thousand pounds. And she's going to discuss with us what, what a food relationship problem is and how she worked to change her relationship with food and to her body. We're going to talk about self-recognition and acceptance instead of shaming. And um, she was raised in a family from a father from Palestine, a mother who's half Palestinian, half Syrian, and her upbringing was very regulated and strict, as is the norm for the culture. And I say that because I was raised in a Pakistani home, half Pakistani, half Irish. And so as I read in her book about um, some of the things she was not allowed to do, it was very similar as I grew up. And we both are thankful and grateful for the experience. So without further uh, talking about this, I'm going to bring Linda on. Hello and welcome. Hi, Lisa. Thank you. You're welcome. How are you today? Uh, I am fabulous and very, very excited about your show and the work that you do. I think Thank that is you. really incredible. Thank you. I, I think really, we kind of yeah. have like minds. <laughs> we do have like minds. We were just sharing that. So where where do you yes. want to start with? Because your your book talks about your personal struggle with weight loss and weight gain. And there are also so many other little storylines. The beautiful relationship with your father, who's now deceased. The relationship with your children. Your relationship to yourself and food So and your culture. So I'm not sure where you want to begin. Well, um, I'm going to start with the relationship with food and Please. and bring the rest into it. You know, all of us all of us have something that we lean on as a crutch. For some people, like me, it's overeating. 
Aiden brings me comfort. It brings me joy. It brings me all kinds of things. It even makes me uh, go into a stupor if I want to get depressed enough to sleep. <laughs> if yeah, things it can aren't do great. That. Yeah. It can do that. And when you think about it, food is like a chemical because it has different effects on our bodies. Some of yes. them are very good, some not so good. I kind of tell people when they ask me about a weight problem, I say, well, I'm allergic to food. And they go, what? I said, yeah, every time I eat it, it makes me swell up. So, mm. <laughs> you know, with that said. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's clever. It, it, well, it's, it's true. Because a certain, I think certain foods that really are not meant for us to enjoy are the very foods that give, create the most harm and cause us to gain weight, like sugar. Sugar has been actually, uh, has been actually compared to cocaine in the way really? that it affects the mind and the body. Yes, there's uh, scientific studies that where they measured the brain waves and, and the effects of sugar on the brain, and it's the same as to the level of what people, when they take cocaine, and they matched. I mean, they matched. No, and I'm not surprised. Away. Isn't I'm that not something? Surprised. Because the dopamine yeah. that's released when someone uses cocaine and then when you eat and that kind of temporary euphoria. So that makes sense to me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and I can, t I can tell you that there's so many people that, that, like me, have told me, my goodness, that makes sense. Because if chocolate, if I could take it in intravenously, I probably would. You right. know, it's <laughs> yeah. But with that said, um, we develop relationships with different things in our lives that help us cope. For some people, I know people that go to the gym for hours and hours and hours, and they go to such an extreme that their bodies are turning on them. Mm. There's, we have to have that happy medium in our lives. We have to have that balance. So for the people out there that can enjoy a good meal, have a dessert once in a while, and still maintain, you know, healthy, active lifestyle, they've got their, they've got, they've have found their balance and, and they are there. For a lot of us, we're either one end of the spectrum and most of us one end of the spectrum or the other. And the, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go on, go on. And then I'll ask you the question, please. Well, what's interesting is that a lot of people think that people that have weight problems that are fat, point blank fat, they yeah. think they have no self-control. What they right, fail to recognize and know is that having a problem with food is the same as having a problem when you don't want to eat food. It's just opposite sides of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So anorexia and obesity, basically are kind of the same mindset. It's in how you're dealing with your life. It's just one chooses not to eat to take a stand while the other chooses to eat to I take think a stand. It's all about control. Yeah, I think they're opposite sides of the same coin being about control and regulation, self-regulation in, in some way, shape or form. Right. Right. So I'm curious, how, at what age did you pair, you know, eating with comfort? Can you share a bit about how this, your relationship with food as a coping mechanism started for you? Oh, sure. You know, in my family, everything was about family gathering together and enjoying a good meal. And I had so many cousins and uncles and aunts. And even to this day, we all live next door, down the street, around the block. We're all very, very <laughs> close. And I love it absolutely love it. It's so much fun having family that you really have a good time with 
so close. But of course, when people get together, what do we love to do? We love to eat. We love to cook. And in my culture, if you're a really, really good cook, oh my gosh, that's even better. You know, yeah. that, that that's up there. <laughs> it is. You know, some, it is. And so I think that it started very early on from when I was a very small child of equating food with fun, with comfort, with family, with love. All those things meant so much to me. And when, and still do, I mm-hmm. love everything about family and togetherness and that whole support system of knowing you've got people that really, really will be there for you and and have your back and want the best for you. There's no other agenda other than wanting you to do well. With that said, there's also a lot of control mm-hmm. because when people love you and care about you, they have their way of thinking how you should be doing it. Right. Part of growing up is figuring out how you need to do it. And if you can't let go and pull yourself there, you're going to find a way to rebel. Overeating in a young age became my way to rebel. It was my way of being in control. So what were you rebelling now that you're older, looking back? What were you rebelling against in in the way of asserting your independence in this way through food? Well, my mom will tell you, out of her four kids, I was have always been the most outgoing gallivanting, taking off kind of child. And I wanted to see what's out there. I just was naturally still am. I loved the curious, uh, the adventure. Yes. And when you're told, no, you're too little. No, you can't do this. No, we don't do this because, you know, it's not right for you at this age because it would be improper for you or, you know, everything was about a shaming of doing certain things. And I was just like, well, other people do it and they're not feeling ashamed. Why can't I? Especially when I got into my teens, Mm -hmm. because the minute I turned 11, 12, instead of growing normally, which I was, all of a sudden I'm putting on 30 pounds a year. That's a lot for a teenager to be putting on. Did you notice notice that happened? Did you notice that happening when you were that age? Um. I noticed it because it was pointed out all the time. You're gaining weight. You need to lose weight. Stop eating so much. And, you know, the more somebody tells you not to do something, when you're not mature enough to understand the reasoning why they're so concerned, you just think they're picking on you. You don't have the maturity to know that they're not picking on you. They're very concerned. Right. And, yeah, and a lot of times we blame parents because, you know, you'll see a little child on the street that's really, really overweight at such a young age, and oh, their parents—they you know, should be watching what they're eating, watching. And I and I look at the these people when I hear them, I'm like going, they probably are working really, really hard watching what that child is eating. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes, you know, somebody has to step in. But most of the time, if you're predispositioned to being overweight, which in my family, the majority of us are predispositioned to be overweight. It's there already. Then you combine all the other outside elements that come into our lives, part of, you know, part of nature and nurture. The nature part is we're predispositioned to have certain things in our bodies, that how we're going to be. The, the nurture comes from whether it's a, a, a loving nurture and we eat too much for that, or if it's a hurtful nurture 
and we're eating too much for that, you know, for those reasons, to comfort those reasons. You know, I really loved when you talked in your book about being born into two cultures and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. on page 28, one a little too strict for my liking and the other too perverse. You grew up in the 60s and 70s, free love and drugs, and then in this yeah. Arab family. So can you share some of your experiences of what it was like to grow up in an Arab family during that time in the 60s and 70s? Oh, Yeah. In the 60s, we owned a grocery store right on the corner of Haight and Ashbury. Oh, wow. The, the time, yeah. I mean, like right there. Yeah. Right there. In San Francisco. Wow. And I was a little girl. That's what brought us to San Diego because the flower ch- children, the, you know, they would come in and they'd want to put beads around my neck and <laughs> give me flowers. And my father's like, oh, heck no. Oh, no, 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 no. Because I'm all starry-eyed thinking, Oh, they're so glamorous and romantic and sweet. And, you know, I was six years old, seven years old. You know, there was the impression that they were leaving upon me was like, wow, this is so cool. No, not so cool. (laughs) Not so cool. I mean, it was cool at the time for those that were going through it that loved it. But really, when I look back on it, my dad saved me. My mom and dad's strictness saved me because so many of the kids I grew up with of my American friends that got into drugs and they were hurt. And I've lost friends to overdoses. I wasn't allowed to go to their parties. I wasn't allowed to do these things. I was always chaperoned. And therefore, I didn't have to go through those tragedies that those parents went through watching their children spiral out of control and not knowing what to do. You know, my parents, the word, when my parents said no, I didn't ask questions. Then when we moved to San Diego, San Diego was much more family, much more, you know, community. You hardly saw it. It It's all about surfing and beaches and hanging out and, you know, weenie roasts and things like that. It was, it was completely different and it was wonderful. I loved growing up here in San Diego um, because it was just a very nice place to be, especially having a grocery store here. The customers became like family, but also having a grocery store here made it very easy and accessible to candy. And I mean, if I, to food and I used to be able to just, Oh, sugary, high, high calorie, salty, like the worst of the worst right there. The worst of the worst. Yeah. My uncle actually had to tell me, would you please stop eating all the red vines? This was supposed to be selling them, not ingesting them. Not eating the profit. <laughs> talk about that somewhere in the book. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it was, it was kind of like that double-edged sword. My American friends were dating and going to parties, and I wasn't allowed to. If I went to, I went to parties, but they were always completely different than the typical American parties. My parties I went to, they were, you know, ball gowns and they were well chaperoned and, you know, sit down dinners. And when I turned 16, I said to my dad, can I please have a party, a boy girl party? And my father said, no, we don't have boys. That's it. I'll tell you what, I will take you and your six friends to Las Vegas, we'll stay in, in, in Caesars and have dinner in the Bacchanal room. Okay, to my friends, that sounded so cool. Amazing, To me, I'm yeah. like going, yeah. And to me, I'm going, Vegas again? No, I just want to party. Yes. 
<laughs> so before before we came live on the show to our listeners, I was talking to Linda, and I didn't tell you this part, but your book, when I, it was given to me, um, you know, the title, it, it's an out there title. I was like, wow, what's going to be in this book? And I read the whole thing in two days because I didn't know about the cultural piece with you having the Arab background and myself growing up and a half Pakistani home and my father as well. You you talk in your book about your father not wanting you to get too close to Americans, being afraid they would influence you, especially in, in the area of boys and him not trusting boys. My father as well. If a boy would call the house for me, I would be in trouble, even though, you know, I didn't make the call. Um, just wanting to keep a tight rein on me and, you know, wanting my life to be about studying and making good decisions. And so, and I wasn't allowed either to have sleepovers or go sleep out like you speak about in your book. So it was really cool to read about another woman, you know, growing up here that had such similar experiences. And, um, so I just thought that was an unexpected, wonderful storyline in your book is about your culture and your father and your family. Well, thank you. And the interesting yeah. thing about it is, is, you know, I, I don't know you, if you were born here. I was born, yes, in the States, first generation. Okay. Me too, first generation. Yeah. And what people don't understand or get is even though our cultures are just so strong and, and you know, and out there to some people because they're, they're very, very strongly family stick together all this, we don't have a lot of freedom, and a lot of times people don't understand that. I, I will tell you that what people forget is we're just as American as anybody else. Yeah. We're just, we just have a, a different cultural viewpoint of how we raise our families and what family means to us. And it's not that family doesn't mean anything to Americans. Of course it does. We are a very proud country of Americans who raise our children that we want all the good things that everybody wants. All the best, right. Want our ch- yeah, yeah. It just was a different cultural way of bringing up your kids. And, you know, when you're young and still growing and you just see the, the, the norm, the majority seems to be this way and you feel like you might be the outsider and you want to be fit in. When the truth is, is we all fit in. We just fit in the puzzle a little bit differently. Right. My daughter, my daughter, I love the story about my daughter. She was in the third grade and my daughter is beautiful. And I'm her Mm -hmm. mom. I know. But she Mm -hmm. truly is just beautiful, very exotic looking, just gorgeous. And one day she came home and she says, mom. Why can't I have been born with blonde hair and blue eyes like all Mm. my friends? I'm the only one with dark eyes and dark hair. What did you say to that? Oh, I said, okay, I'm your mom and I'm going to tell you you're beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And you're not going to believe me. You're going to think I'm saying it just because I'm your mom. But I promise you, one day you're going to appreciate your difference. Mm-hmm. You're going to appreciate your beauty for who you are more than what you look like. And then you're going to appreciate what you look like because once you know who you are and what you're about, you're just beautiful anyway. And mm. the rest is just gravy. The rest is just gravy. Look, yeah. come and go. People change styles, come and go. You know, people to always tell me, oh my goodness, you're beautiful. You're so exotic looking. Thank you. 
you know, right. to me, I'm just like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then growing up in this, in this, you know, multicultural home in, in America, in California. And, um, you know, I love this excerpt in your book. I'm going to read from page 29 and you say, no matter what childhood messages we were raised with, no matter how difficult our early years, sooner or later, we have to decide what kind of lives we want to live from now on. We must learn to channel what works for us and discard what does not without turning to addictive coping patterns. So can you kind of take us, you know, a little more into your and, you know, kind of coming up in the years, turning to food. I know at one point you got up to 411 pounds, so clearly dangerous, you know, for your health and just how, you know, what this journey was like for our listeners to know. Oh, sure. Um, in reality, actually, I got up to 430 pounds. That okay. was my highest I ever got to. And the reason why I say that is because until... I got into my mid-40s, and until the tragedy with my youngest son, I never mm-hmm. felt my weight. I knew it was there, but I never felt it. And I think that's a lot of the things when we're growing, as we're going and progressing, some things we put into denial big time. As long as we can physically do something, we don't address the problem. Okay. But the, but the problem with that is, is once you are forced to face that problem and have to do something about it, it's become ingrained. It's, it's your habit. It's your life. It's who you have been your whole life. Then now you have to work at it to make changes. So, you know, when I was told when I was 40 that I was diabetic, oh, my goodness, what? But I yeah. didn't feel anything. I wasn't hurting in any way. Did that stop me? No. What made me decide to have the gastric bypass surgery was the loss of my son made me feel like I was 20 years older and disabled mentally, physically. And I said, okay, you got to do something because either you're going to join him, which at the time didn't feel like such a bad thing. Right. Or you're going to survive him and make him proud of you. Yes. And. The good part is, is that yes, I did survive him and having the gastric bypass surgery, it got rid of 250 pounds off of me. And it was wonderful because I was able to feel like, you know, young and I felt like I was 19 and thin. I didn't feel like I was 48 and fat any longer. I felt like I was 19 and thin. But the problem was never, the physical problem had changed the emotional way of dealing with things had not. And so I am 58 years old. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. And you know, another storyline in your book, in addition to your culture, the relationship with your father or the relationship with your children and losing your son, which I'm so sorry. Um, Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Can you talk some about the role your children have played in your growth and development and especially in relationship to food when your son passed away? Oh, yes, absolutely. My children had always been my greatest cheerleaders, my greatest supporters. Um, they they kind of stopped being that for a while when I met my second husband. Second husband, married. right, and right. Y- yes. But with that said, um, 
one of my one out of the four of my kids has never really had a weight problem. He's always been tall and slender. If anything, you know, under slender because he's just has a metabolism that goes, goes and goes. And he didn't inherit that gene that my other three and myself got. My oldest, because he's more like on his father's side, as big as he is, he's like solid rock muscle. Okay. So for for him to be 300 pounds, but he's rock muscle. Mm-hmm. Then came my daughter and my youngest son. And when we moved to California, my three youngest, my second oldest is skinny, my other two who always battled with their weight, they were chubby little kids and they grew into be really fat adults. Um, they got their habits from me. Okay. And they got those habits because they saw me coping with food and it didn't help that, you know, misery loves company. So it didn't help to go and get food that was so unhealthy, junk food. And then of course your kids are with you. Well, mommy, can we have that too? Right. How and do you say no? How do you say no? Yeah. yeah. How I'm do you not say no? leading by example, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course they're dealing with coping with a very bad divorce of their parents. Right. And they've used, they learned to use food the way I had learned to use food. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a very vicious, horrible cycle. And the problem is with food because it's used, you know, it's not like alcohol and drugs and, you know, sex and gambling addictions. Those addictions you can control because you don't need them to live. But food we but need, food exactly. Need to live. Yeah, you right. physically need. So where do you draw the line when you're already in an addictive pattern? It, it's a fight every single day. Yeah. And sometimes sometimes you win it. I have lost a tremendous amount of weight throughout my, you know, adulthood only to put it on and and then some. This is the first time uh, after losing all that weight with the gastric bypass, I put on 110 pounds back that I'm working to get off. And I was told, well, why don't you have the revision? They have a revision that's, you know, pretty non-invasive and they'll go in and they'll, you know, stitch up your stomach, a new stitch called the Apollo stitch. And it keeps your stomach from growing, period. It can't stretch out again. Well, guess what? Now the stomach lining is still thinner. Am I going to start eating and not learn how to cope? And then my stomach blows up. It's not about the surgery. It's not about the physical. It's about learning to cope and use good, healthy ways mentally. And it's not to say that people that are overweight are crazy. It's not that they're crazy. That's just how they cope. And they're in a position where because we need it to live, we're also needed to cope. Eh, it's a free-for-all. <laughs> right. You know, and, and you, yeah, it does. And you speak so honestly and well in your book talking about, you know, we spoke before coming live on the show about shame and, and the sense of shame and, and just about eating specifically how you would, you know, go to say a, a 
fast food place and, and eat a whole meal before going to say a family dinner and then eating that meal and just the secretiveness. And, you know, anyone that's ever done that, you know, myself included, I so related to just that sense of shame, you know, that you don't want anyone to know you're doing this and you know, it's not right, right but it feels so good. And that moment that you just can't stop, you know, and, and just right. the secrets, you know, the way you lie to yourself about that, like, you know, I'll deal with this tomorrow or, or, or whatever you might tell yourself. So you were just so honest, you know, about every nuance of what it's like to have an, an eating disorder in this way. Well, because I finally got to the point where I thought when I wrote this book, I wanted to, to really be that honest because in that honesty, I've done several things. Some of it's very selfish. And the selfish part is, is I have freed myself from trying to live a persona that I, I'm not. I can't be. Yeah. I can't fool people and think, uh, oh, no, I never touched that. Oh, no, no, no. Well, really, then how are you gaining weight? Right. What are you eating? You eat so little. How is it that you're heavy? Well, you know, some people and metabolism. No, I'm eating when you're not around. Right. And so the selfishness comes into the fact that now that I've openly admitted it, I don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't worry about what other people think. I don't worry about, oh, my goodness, it is what it is. This is who I am. This is my struggle. And it's not just mine. 60% of the people in this country are overweight. And it's actually the numbers are closer to 80%. But of that, of that, 35% are morbidly ob obese. And children, type 2 diabetes that used to happen when you're 40, like it did with me, is happening in kids. Mm -hmm. And it's because we've become more sedentary with computer games and, you know, I love Candy Crush Saga. and you know, <laughs> We'd rather right. sit and play on our phones or our computers than get out and do something active. And we eat more than we ever did. The one comfort, thing that I can tell people yeah. for everything, when, when you have gastric bypass surgery and you're forced to eat a tablespoon of food and that's hard for you and yet you're surviving, that tells you we really don't need that much food to survive. Yeah. You know, I, it's interesting you bring that up because I've worked with clients that have had gastric bypass surgery. And what I've noticed that I see is, is so challenging is that you're used to eating a certain amount of food prior to the surgery. And then you cannot mm -hmm. physically after you're sick. I mean, your body can't hold it. So I, I saw this big gap between, you know, what the person's body can handle post-surgery, but where, you know, emotionally you're used to coping with this. But so I, I've, you know, help clients along bringing the mind to catch it up with the body. Does that make sense? And it's, it's it been painful to, to see because I don't, I don't know now that there was enough education, you know, to, to people having the surgery about you need to have other self-care in place because you won't be able to eat like you did. And, and, um, you know, the crisis that that can cause emotionally and such. Well, the thing about it is, is depending on who you're, um, you know, carrier is your insurance carrier. I have Kaiser. Kaiser makes you go through 24 weeks of a real wake up. I read call that before. Yeah. The, yes. And it, I have to tell you, it really, you know, it makes you face the reality and it really it invokes that you have to understand that this is a tool that that's why 50%, excuse me, that's why most people will gain 50% of their weight back or at least, you know, most, 
most of it or more within five years because the first couple of years you can't eat. Then when you can start eating, as humans, we like we want to push the envelope. So we put our foot in the little pond to see if the water's hot or cold. And if it's nice and warm, we're like going, oh, I can't eat this. And I did hold it down. And that was my problem is I didn't think I would do that because I was so grateful for having surgery that got me to a place where I felt so good about my body. Yeah. But with that said, it didn't teach me how to cope. And, you know, you brought up something very, very interesting, and that was all about the fat shaming. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you all know who Ashley Graham is. She is a, a, a model, a beautiful, beautiful model. Okay. And this beautiful model is um, overweight. And okay. she's become famous because she started her career in modeling for the big girl shops, Lane Bryant and Catherine's and some of these other ones. And she has become a spokesperson against fat shaming. Love your body. Mm. And I mm-hmm. always say that. God gave me this body. This body, as heavy as it is now, as heavy as it was and as light as it was, it has carried me through a lot of things in life and still sticks by me no matter what I seem to do to it until it won't someday until it won't someday. So we have to love our bodies no matter what they look like, no matter what. So self-recognition and acceptance is is what I hear you talking about. Hugely. And the self-recognition has to come from within ourselves, but we also have to be able to not blind ourselves to what's what, how we're perceived outwardly meaning that a lot of times we don't see past the tip of our nose so we can be, we'll be judgmental about somebody else for something else. Uh, physically, you know, they're not dressed that great or, you know, they, they have crossed eyes or, you know, they have stringy hair, whatever it is, too short, yeah. too tall, whatever it may be, we all have a cross to bear. And so I bring up Ashley Graham because this young lady who has so many people supporting her that's just the rave on the YouTube and on the internet and in fashion magazines actually got criticized by a lot of people because in a few pictures in her modeling pictures recent, she looked like she dropped a few pounds. And oh, I'm interesting. Like, There's that shaming in her in reverse. It's almost like they feel reverse, like she, yeah. yeah. Like she betrayed them because she may have lost a few pounds. A few pounds. Isn't that? But the truth is she hadn't lost an ounce. It just was the way the picture was taken. But so what? And for our listeners. Why do we feel the need to judge? Yes. She was the first model size 16 to be on the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, which is amazing. And so fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we shouldn't she's judge beautiful. anybody for anything. Yeah. She's gorgeous, gorgeous. And she's, she's empowering, you know, because she's telling people, hey, this is my body. I love my body as it is, no matter what it is. And mm-hmm. I'm going to be out there and enjoy it. And if someone has a problem with the way I look, that's their problem. It's not mine. We all need to do that. We all need to take a lesson like that. 
and like I struggle, I struggle, I struggle, I struggle. And I was talking to one of my friends who's a psychotherapist and he said, Linda, I'm going to give you some statistics that you're not going to like, but I think you need to know. Okay. He said that people who suffer from binge eating disorder or from, you know, have morbid obesity tendencies, the studies are now showing that their chance of losing weight and keeping it off is almost nil. Mm. So then the next question goes, well, why bother then? And the answer to that is the only reason to bother is if you're uncomfortable in your own skin, then you have to keep fighting for what you feel you need to do for yourself. Right. And that's my, that's my message for myself. I don't like feeling this weight. You know, have you found Linda, I, I believe people change most by through love, through encouragement, through, you know, accepting, say, where you are, knowing that you want to move beyond that. Have you found that as well through accepting, like, this might be where I am now and my size, you know, like through encouragement instead of that harsh criticism and scathing brutality, you know, mentally, has that been helpful for you? Hugely helpful and pardon the pun, because I really did not mean to make a pun, but you know, hugely mm. helpful because yeah. Yeah, I know, yeah. but <laughs> the thing is, <laughs> okay, we had our chuckle, right? <laughs> yes, we did. We did. <laughs> but, but the thing is, is that if it doesn't start within us to accept ourselves for who we are, what we do, I look at myself and I see all my strengths and I, I love the things about myself that, you know, my compassion and my, my need to spread love and engage with people and really, really want to connect with them. I've been accused of being phony because people go, oh, nobody's that nice. Well, actually, yes, I am. And I yeah. love that about myself. Mm-hmm. I also know that I have my frailties, my faults. And one of them is, is I struggle with self-discipline when it comes to food. I can accomplish anything you want. If you say, Linda, I need this done by, it will be done. But when it comes to food, that's where I struggle. Does this make me a horrific person? No, it just makes me a person who has struggles with food. Right. Just like someone might have a struggle with a a different issue. Exactly. And we all do. Yeah. No, go on and then I'll ask you. I don't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. That's okay. Honey, I could go on forever. You got to interrupt me if you want me to stop. (laughs) Me too. You know, you brought up, you brought up a few things in your book that, that really like struck a nerve in, in a good way for me. And one of them, so I wonder if you could speak to both of them. You talk about, um, the pattern, uh, the pattern that, Mm -hmm. that was created within yourself of not taking care of yourself first, not putting your own feelings first. And then secondarily, you speak about towards the end about anger and not expressing your anger. Can you talk about both of those things to our listening audience? Oh, yeah. It's very, very important. Um, When you're brought up, particularly in our type of cultures, we're brought up to take care of everything and everyone first. In my family, you know, my my father was the king of the home. My mother was the queen of the home. That's from my father. He said, I'm the king. Your mother's the queen. Same here. In my house. Yeah. Right. And you don't see your friends. You don't go out and do things until you have helped your mother. Until the house is perfect because we have to have a nice home, clean and presentable. What if somebody stops by? Yeah. Until you've learned to cook. 
until you've learned to do the things that you should know to do, once everything's done, then the time comes for yourself. Well, when you're ingrained with these messages your whole childhood life and it carries on into your adulthood, you put everybody else first. Right. How can I go exercise? I still haven't, you know, made the meal that, you know, coming up, we got the holidays. We got, how in the world am I going to do that before I do this first? I have to do this first for someone else. And the truth is, is if we don't learn to take care of ourselves first and put our basic needs first, we will never, ever have that feeling of peace within ourselves ever. Right. So setting boundaries, learning to set boundaries, setting boundaries. with others. Right. And I'm learning that now. I am learning yeah. that now. It's taken me all these years to turn around and say my very favorite word in the whole English language, in any language, and that's the word no. Yeah. I'm sorry I can't do that, but just simply no. Without mm-hmm. feeling like I have to make apologies or excuses. No, it's not going to work for me right now. I can't know. I don't have that time right now. And I have yes. found that when I set those boundaries, the response is actually okay. People still love me. Yes. The same people I cared about that I was afraid to, ooh, what are they going to, they're like, oh, no, that's fine. I got it covered. Oh, they got it covered. I didn't have to do mm-hmm. that. And then the other thing you wanted me to talk to you about um, help me is help anger. Me is is oh, anger. Impression of anger. Yeah. How you, you really started to, uh, that was towards the end of the book, if I recall correctly, just the way yes. you didn't allow yourself to express your anger. Well, because nice brought up girls, you know, and, I'm, and, and I, I would say girls, it's not because I'm trying to be sexist. I'm trying to be what was culturally related. Yes. But nice. Yeah. Arab girls do not talk back, mm-hmm. do not, you know, when your father and mother tell you no, you're respectful and you say, well, no, they, they said, no, that's it. They care about me. They, they love me. That's why they tell me no. They tell me no. They tell me no. And, and I'm not supposed to say anything. And when I do think I should say something, then I'm being disrespectful. So I shouldn't say anything. And my parents were incredibly loving and giving and pushing us to be the very best we could be. But again, going back to my immaturity at the time, you don't understand that. You don't get it, what their, what their agenda is. It doesn't right. make sense until you're older and wiser and maybe have had a few children of your own or have had experiences if you don't have children that open your eyes to understanding that they just wanted to protect and take care of and, and lead you in a direction that they felt would be a positive direction and, and, and you know, a good life. And so I held back a lot of anger. I literally stuffed it down Mm -hmm. and turning around and letting go, learning to let go of that anger didn't come out in being angry. It came out in understanding what, where it was all coming from, where those rules were coming from and having them, you know, someone said to me recently, they said, how is it that you're not angry about all the stuff that happens? You know, your ex-husband, you and him right. have been divorced for 26, 27 years, and, and you're still hearing stuff. And I said, because he's not important anymore. Why should I be angry? God bless him. Have a good life. Yes. My children are grown. You've moved on. Right. I've moved on. And that's not to say that we should have any kind of revenge, 
but the greatest revenge has always been, heck, guess what? I didn't need you. I raised my own children. I put them through school. I took you care of them. You figured it out. Yeah. I, I, I saw all of, not, it has nothing to do with him anymore. It has to do with what's the best that I can do for me? What was the best I could do for my kids? Yeah. And boy, oh boy, that's empowering. And so you when embrace I came back that. to San Diego with 700 bucks to my name and paid off my son's saxophone and paid off my other son's surfboards mm-hmm. and, you know, took our first family vacation after 10 years and paid for it on my own. Nobody said, no, let me help. Like my daddy, my daddy would say, let me help. I got this covered for you. Come with us. And when I say, no, 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 I should be able, I'm a grown, no, when you can, you will. And when I could, right. I did. And I was able to let go because I'm not one to hold on to anger or be angry. You have to really, really be downright disrespectful or hurtful to somebody or something. And rarely at myself, most of the time I can let it go. But that's the thing is you don't want to let it go on yourself either. You need to have that same fight for the right that you would have for your children if somebody was hurting them. You need to treat yourself that way. Yourself you in that way too. too. Yes. 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 Yeah. For myself as well, I had to learn coming from, you know, my Pakistani culture, learning how to set boundaries and say no, you know, because that wasn't allowed, that wasn't permissible. So, you know, being an adult and in out and about in the world, you know, not everyone obviously has good intentions. And so having to learn to sort through those circumstances and saying no, and even being called selfish sometime where I've learned selfish is not a bad word, you know, in, in all of its uses that it's okay to be selfish, to do what, you know, one believes is right to self-direct their lives and, and such. Mm-hmm. So I had to teach myself those things as well as an adult woman. I trade the word selfish for self-preservation. Yeah, I like that. For myself. I do. Mm -hmm. I I actually trade when someone says, well, that's kind of selfish. I'm like, no, it's self-preservation. It's self-preserving. I like that. I'm going to borrow that. You may. Absolutely. Thank you. Because it's true. Selfish is negative. You're not selfish when you take care of yourself. You're doing what you're supposed to do. If you had a baby and you had to feed your baby and change their diapers and whatever it is, that's what you have to do. That's, that's doing the right thing to preserve and take care of that child. Well, we, we, we have to start treating ourselves like, not like we're children, but like we have that inner child within us that didn't understand that's starting to put it all together and gain that wisdom. Like my second oldest son says, he doesn't call senior citizens senior citizens. He calls them wiser citizens. Oh, and I, I love like that. that too. Yeah. Yeah. Wiser I citizens. love that because we learn. We're constantly learning the things that matter to us when we were in our teens and our 20s, when we were saying, okay, when I grow up, I'm going to, and I'm going to have, and, you know, the big house, the cars, this and that, or whatever. Now, I don't think those are th- such big deals. I'd rather say I have peace of mind. I have the greatest peace of mind. That to me is so, far more valuable than everything Than the material. Else. So this right. leads, uh, this perfect segue to my last question for you, Linda, which mm-hmm. is what is it that you would like to leave as far as a legacy or, or the world through your work, through your writing? What is it that you want to contribute? I really want people to take a look at themselves take a hard look at themselves and realize just how amazing and incredible they are. 
and this is not lip service. We are so hard on ourselves, and there's so much good within us. We can have the choice every single day to decide what kind of a day it's going to be for ourselves and our community around us and in the world. With all the scary things that are happening, I look at it, and I'm like going, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. Mm -hmm. This doesn't make sense. Why would anyone feel that it's okay to behave and do and treat others in this manner? And is it so far-fetched to believe by simply wanting the very best for yourself and wanting it just as much for the person standing next to you that we could all have a good, happy, content, respectful, kind life? Yeah. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. And it's not naive. It's, it's not, it may not be a reality because some people just don't know how to, to embrace that. But my message is loud and clear. Start embracing from the good. I always taught my children, work from the positive, never the negative. Because if you work from the positive, you're working toward good things. And from a place if of love, work, too, that's is what right. I hear you saying. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So, Be Linda, how, how, how can our listeners get your book as is, Confessions of a True Fatty? Where can we buy your book? How can, how can listeners reach you? Oh, thank you. Amazon and Barnes and Noble are selling me like crazy, which I absolutely love. It means so much to me that people are embracing the book and embracing what I'm talking about and having it resonate within them. You can also reach me at Linda Missla Wagner at gmail.com. I would love to answer any questions or speak to anyone that needs, you know, needs someone to pass this message along. Um, I would love to see people unite this way. And as a matter of fact, I hope to join you in the ranks of being uh, promoting a radio show at my own point called You've Got to Be Kidding Me because I really oh, think awesome. that we can change things. Well, yeah, let me know how I can work with you sense. on that. I'd love to. Yes. I would love it. I would love and to learn from you awesome. and pay it forward. <laughs> yes. I want to say one more thing to our listeners. You have a fantastic website full of information. Uh, so it's lindamislawagner.com, L-I-N-D-A. M-I-S-L-E-H, Wagner, W-A-G-N-E-R.com. There's a wealth of information, resources um, for weight loss. Just, it's an amazing website. And I want to thank you thank for you. being with us today, Linda. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you and reading your book. Oh, me too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so You're much so for welcome. what you do and have me on. Thank, thank you. you. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. You, you too, Linda. Bye. Bye-bye. That concludes my show today with Linda Misla Wagner. Join me next week for another episode of All Things Therapy. Bye-bye. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir.